First, you must realize that you have no idea before you can know the idea. We scan across all the frequencies if we want to learn anything new. Let us begin. What has physics done for me lately? Furthermore, the equation E is equal we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. That's like when you're in physics and you get a dream about saying, oh, this is a physics excursion. What is it all about? The whole of human history all falls in the dust of one stroke of the nail file. You can't really get to grips with evolution unless you realize uh, what an enormous amount of time. Our own planet is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. You are tuned in to what can only be described as the best radio station on this blue dot we call Earth. It is, of course, for Triple Z. Beat on your conventional wireless radio by tuning into the classic frequency of 102.1 FM. Digital devices such as DAB or smart speaker. Listening via the Community Radio Plus app. Or streaming us live from our sensational website at 4ZZZ.org.au. And of course, you can always listen back to us or any 4ZZZ show for that matter using the ingenious on-demand feature also found at that URL. We also now have a weekly podcast of the show for your listening pleasure. A condensed version of the show without the music, which my mum prefers. Just search for our show name, which is of course... No idea, spelt with a K, your weekly dose of science. And joining me today to speak all things science are some of my favourite science communicators. May I please welcome Izzy, who's in the studio. Good morning. And we've got Gabe and Peter streaming in. Hello. Good morning. And a shout out to our lovely Z-liners this morning as well with Cloudy with a chance of showers. Which, mate, that yeah. was the actual <laughs> weather forecast when we were down in Melbourne uh, over the weekend. Yeah, a lot yeah. of showers in Victoria. A lot really? of showers. A lot of showers? Yeah. Yep. Just, just wherever you go. Walking down the street. What have we got today? <laughs> 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 Nothing I know about. Max, oh, I've got, I've got, I'm so excited about my science this week. It's been a fantastic week. There's been, there's been Swift stuff. The, the Woolworth CEO guy getting tackled <laughs> the corners interview and getting, getting the sack. It's just made my absolute day. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and I've got science for you, Max, in my favourite little realm of ecology. I've got stuff on the. Possibly the world's weirdest mushroom. I've got mm. stuff on on how ants are changing how lions hunt uh, in Kenya. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. Uh, what do you got, Peter? I have some stuff for weird science, which I'm quite excited about. And then I have a massive learning about our reefs globally, which is very, very exciting. Cool. cool. And racing science coming up because F1's rapidly approaching. Space News at the end of the show. I think this whole show <laughs> is a science experiment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, let's let's just get into the science, our safe space. Triple Z, we want to appeal to your senses. You tune into four Triple Z, and we're going to do a bit of this. Who wants to hit us up with a bit of weed science this week? I thought you said you were calling out. Go for it, Peter. Got us all on edge and then right. you just <laughs> throw it out of the air. Goodness, Max. All right, so I am excited to start because I'm going to talk about something I really like, which is tea. And I wanted to see, like, what's everyone's favourite type of tea? Bushels. Yeah, old oh, classic. Great, <laughs> oh, it's good. Decent. New York 
breakfast. I think it's just normal black tea, though. Is it? New York breakfast on tea, too, includes a vanilla flavor, too. There you go. It yeah. adds, like, a pancake syrupy thing. What do you got first? Izzy, what's I'm your favorite? I'm a rooibos girl. I love it. South African red plant. Mm. Can drink all of that and not get caffeine. Anyway. Because you work in a tea store. I do work in a tea store, so this is dangerous. <laughs> oh, yes, that's true. I forgot about that. You, you do. You serve tea mm. all day. Well, this might be a fun fact for you mm. to your customers. Mm. So, my favourite tea, just for whoever's wondering, is matcha. I love matcha. It's like a special it's preparation good. of green tea. It's like all ground up. Anyway, it's delicious. And obviously, we know, actually, Lizzie, that there is a whole world to tea huge world mm-hmm. different leaves qualities brews etc and though it may not sit right with many aussies i'd say it's an even bigger and more serious world than coffee world which is why everyone's so excited about this late latest discovery scientists from the fujian agriculture and forestry university in china qs ranking mm, 200 600 max 200 889. <laughs> it's an agriculture university. You know, they've got a, spe- they've yeah. got a specific thing. Yeah. But they've found that while tea varieties and leaves are important in what makes a good brew, there's another ingredient that we've been missing. Microbes. Specifically, the community of microbes that live on the roots of the tea plants. Not only do the researchers isolate microbes that help the tea taste good, they actually prove that by adding these microbes to other plants, it can improve the taste. To quote the author, Tong Daoju, through the isolation and assembly of a synthetic microbial community from high-quality tea plant roots, they managed to notably enhance the amino acid content in various tea plant varieties, resulting in an improvement in tea quality. So apparently this partially came about because it's quite hard to change tea plants through molecular genetic breeding. They, it's really difficult and expensive. So they were looking for easier ways for farmers to improve their product. And as any good agricultural scientist would do, they turned to the soil. And they found that certain microbes were affecting the plant's uptake of ammonia, which is key for the production of tannin. Now, does anyone know what tannin does? It's like tannin, is it? Tannin. Sort of, yeah. Mm. It's like a key driver for determining a tea's taste. It is mm. like, for its name, tannin, it is tea. It's what it... Can I ask, how do you measure the quality of something? Like, is it subjective or they got this some objective measures? This was a question I had yeah. when mm. I was reading this because there's no explanation as to how they determined what was low quality and high quality. Mm. I have an assumption that in a higher tea drinking culture like China, I feel like there may be more... It, it may feel more empirical. Like, this is a low-quality tea and this is a high-quality tea. Whether that's based in any, like, specifics or... So, it's like, test, it's like tasting know. red wine, basically. I think tea enthusiasts would be uh, <laughs> not happy with the connection. I, um, I, I think also they go through a certain verification process right. as well. Yeah. yeah. So you can For the tea. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they like much like red wines and mm. much like many things that have kind of a vary of low quality to high quality. Mm. There are stamps that you can receive for that product. Gotcha. But continue. Mm. Yeah, so that's a really good point to bring in because I think that's about as close to empirical as you're gonna get. Mm-hmm. But the way the study was written, it's very much like the authors, through their language, made it sound like you can easily tell what's low and high quality. Mm. And they were making these low quality plants taste more like high quality plants because they found microbes that would uh, affect the plant's ammonia uptake and boost the tannin levels in the plant. And then what they did is they created a synthetic microbial community that closely mirrored one high tannin tea variety known as, I think it's Rogui anyone knows it Mm. seems to be quite popular and then they applied that 
synthetic microbial community to low quality tea varieties and they found that it boosted the, the theanine it also made the plants taste better again that's not really an empirical thing but one thing it also did was make the plants more suited to low nitrogen environments which makes them largely easier to grow for a lot of farmers hmm. so it's pretty much just good news for teas all round and if you want better tea Sprinkle some Syncom 21 microbial <laughs> on your plants. At your local Bunnings available. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> what do you got for this guy? Oh, a frog and a mushroom. Uh, and a story <laughs> of them being a bit too intertwined. Um, because it's, it, well, it might be, I think, for weird science, the weirdest mushroom we've ever talked about. Not the weirdest species, but the weirdest individual mushroom because in the latest edition of the journal reptiles and amphibians a mushroom was found growing out of a living frog mm. two people behind this uh, <laughs> short unassuming little article was an amateur naturalist and someone who works for wwf india uh, they're in the foothills hills of uh, oh, I forgot to look up how to pronounce this before we went on air. Kudramuka Ranges in southwest India. Uh, and there, there were, there's a group of five of them. And they say when they were in, in these foothills of the ranges, they found about 40 rows intermediate golden back frogs in a pond fen, fed by rainwater. Mm. And these frogs, just to give you an idea of what they look like, they've got that, like the colour that only a frog can be, which is yellow, green and brown all at the same time mm. with some sort of speckles of them throughout and a yellower underbelly. Chartreuse, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful colour name. Mm. And uh, a, a sort of sm they're small and they have a, uh, a triangular snout to them as well. And perched on a twig, one of these frogs of the 40 caught their eye. On its left flank was what was most are calling a bonnet mushroom, a small, long, thin little white mushroom with a little bonnet hat on the top mm. uh, and according to the books bonnet mushrooms and uh, pretty much any other mushroom that this could be mm. uh, based on just the, the pictures of it uh, survive on eating decomposing life mainly rotting wood uh, so not to say that fungi is never found on living animals mm. even us humans we get fungal infections um, it's not the first fungi found in frogs but famously the chytrid fungus has driven declines in like 43 sp frog species in Australia and sent mm. seven extinct so fungus on Life and on, uh, on other animals and on um, uh, frogs is not unheard of, but it's believed to be the first mushroom found growing out of a living frog. We don't know why it was there or how it managed to do that, and we may never find out because neither the frog nor the mushroom were collected. Oh. Uh, but <laughs> I wanted them to cook it up, have a taste of it, <laughs> see if it was psychedelic or not. Honestly, the first thing I'm thinking is that we need to keep the cottage core girlies away oh from this. Oh, my God. This would be I was bad for them that. to learn about this. The fan art will be unhinged. <laughs> this was, if it was a button mushroom, uh, and it's pulled up a pretty crazy ecological switch to go from yeah. surviving off consuming de decomposing wood to surviving mm. off a living frog, uh, bringing us, I think, one step closer to a future where The Last of Us is thought of more of a uh, documentary. <laughs> Factual. Oh, yeah. That's right. Uh, <laughs> you tuned into 4ZZZ. And the show is no idea. I gotta do this. Go for it. Me? Yeah. All right. Wake up, babes. <laughs> New giant snake species identified. <laughs> oh, I saw this. The oh. anaconda snakes or the, I'm going to balls as the genus, N-Extus, mm. um, is a, is, uh, 
subcategory have had a history of uncertain or controversial taxonomic statuses across their species, but this study examined genetic data from four recognised anaconda species across nine different countries. Now, Izzy, what's the local angle on this? Well, the University of Queensland professor Brian Fry, who has popped up in a few um, snake-related articles, championed the team behind studying various species of newly named northern green anacondas located in the Ecuadorian Amazon listen to this during a National Geographic documentary filming right. so completely I'm surprised unrelated. he was interested in them given they're not venomous yeah <laughs> <laughs> that guy doesn't go through anything that's not going to be able exactly. to kill him <laughs> yeah. Professor Fry stated that the northern green anaconda species split from the southern green anaconda almost 10 million years ago and they are genetically differed by 5.5% Professor Fry stated that the Warani people who are the indigenous people of the Bahari Warani territory in the Amazon took researchers through a 10-day expedition where they saw one female anaconda snake measured at an astounding 6.3 metres long. Now, as a regular in the Gap grapevine and all of Facebook groups where there are frequent photos of pythons and whatever else, a (laughs) 6.3 metres is rather large. It's a bit bit on the large side. (laughs) Did we get circumference? We did not get circumference, Mm. but they did say that the Rwani people have had records of snakes that are even longer and even wider than that. Oh, okay. But this was just on this expedition alone. This study will not only examine the newer species of snake that was found, but also will use the genetics of the green anaconda to be an indicator species for their ecosystem's health. Because don't forget, the Amazon basin is continuing to face ongoing drought conditions and almost constant deforestation, with the World Weather Attribution stating that its river levels have been reported at the lowest levels in 120 years so not only will the snake and its newfound role play a large well role in Mm, as an indicator as an indicator but also as a new way of identifying other um amazon well other snakes and um other species in that amazon area if you want to know more information the national geographic filming that they did was the pole to pole series with will smith oh eating eating spaghetti yes for some reason (laughs) (laughs) he's there um but professor fry is the expedition scientific leader so at least you'll see a fellow aussie in that story thank goodness so (laughs) i woke up this morning and i saw that on reddit i'm like i have to do it it's so great and it is a gorgeous little snake as well. Little. <laughs> yeah, gorgeous little snake. Only about six feet Only six long. feet big. <laughs> what about you, Max? I'm known for talking a lot about hybrid cars. But mm-hmm. what if I cars was... Cars in general. <laughs> <laughs> what if I was to mention hybrid rice? Korean oh. scientists. A <laughs> <have> segue. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> Worked all morning on that one. The uh, Korean scientists... <laughs> <Win> you, Max. <laughs> may have developed a cool new superfood called cultured beef rice. They achieved this by by growing (laughs) animal muscle and fat cells inside rice. I'm sorry. It's like a rice ravioli. (laughs) (laughs) Ready to go all in one. (laughs) The one pot recipe to rule them all. Honestly, this could only have come out of Korea. (laughs) Jasmine, basmati, or beef stew rice. (laughs) 
Lord. You can find the article in the journal Matter. The researchers envisage a nutritious and delicious hybrid food that, once commercialised, could offer a protein-rich alternative with what I am calling an eco-radio-friendly stamp of <laughs> approval because it has a small carbon footprint to produce. Oh, sick. <laughs> Wow. Rice grains. Is this, is this Max getting around the, the issue with these cultured meats that they yes. can't get the texture right Correct. and like make big, like scaffolded chunks of meat? They're sort of limited to like, what do they have? Like popcorn chicken, I think we talked about yeah. recently, because mm. that was as much as they can culture with still having and some. And then they're now introducing mushroom as the sort of the structure to give it some sort of backbone yeah. for it to grow. Well, these, these guys have just gone, well, why, why have structure? Just, just, yeah, <laughs> just sell it as crumb <laughs> beef. <laughs> Yeah, actually, that's a good point. How rice is it, or is it just rice-shaped? Well, I'm going to explain it. I'll keep going. Let's go. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, Don't interrupt your script. (laughs) 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 It's a terrible idea. I'm such a good scientist. Rice grains are naturally porous and have organised structures, providing a perfect scaffold to house animal-derived cells within. Various nutrients found in rice also aid the growth of animal cells, so it's a double win. The Korean team first coated rice with fish gelatin, a safe and edible ingredient that helps cells latch onto the rice. Then bovine muscle and fat stem cells were then seeded into the rice and left to culture in a petri dish for up to 11 days. It's not sounding super appetising so far. (laughs) To to test the cultured rice, the researchers steamed it and performed various food industry analyses. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What? What's the with egg? Including They wanted to see what its nutritional value was, its odour and texture. And, it, and they said it, it, it smelled a bit like almonds. So They eat this one oh, sorry. because, because mm. last time with that chicken story, the chicken nugget thing yeah. where they made the little popcorn chicken, <laughs> they had some line in there about how no one's tasted it, which was uh, yeah. the biggest line of crap we've ever read in a media release. There's no mm. way someone didn't try one of those. <laughs> did they taste this stuff? Yes, they did. They cooked it up anyway. I don't know if they actually uh, had ate it or not. But apparently no it had... cooking if you're not going to eat it. Yeah. It had 8% more protein and 7 percent more Sorry. fat. Eight, eight, eight percent you don't. filled it with fish and beef <laughs> and you only got eight percent. Jesus. <laughs> anyway. Oh, good Lord. It's basically just like cooking rice and beef. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we're back to risotto again. <laughs> Anyway, they reckon uh, it has low food safety risks. (laughs) 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 But before they reckon it'll get to our supermarket uh, shelves, the team wants to create better conditions in the rice grain for both muscle and fat cells to thrive, which will further boost its nutritional value. This, this, like, (laughs) it's a fantastic idea. I think it's like they're growing beef cells inside rice. Mm. That's the idea. Yeah. But this is going to need the marketing push of a life. <laughs> <laughs> you can come up with a name for cultured beef <laughs> rice. Yeah. I wonder, yeah. how are you selling this? Because mm. this is not selling itself. Mm. Peter, what do you got for us? As always, I like to start my stories with a quiz. Does anyone here know what the largest living thing on Earth is? Pacific oh. Ocean. Um... <laughs> What? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a mushroom Sorry. or a tree. No, it's a, isn't it like a connection of big trees somewhere? There's a very large connection of living seagrass, which is the single largest single that's, organism. That's in WA, isn't it? 
South Australia, yes. Oh, um. But does anyone know what the largest living thing is? Not single organism, more than one organism, but the largest living thing. What? It's the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, of course it is. The Great Barrier oh, Reef yeah, is the yeah, largest yeah. living thing on Earth. Yeah. Yeah, that thing. Mm. Yeah. We all should know this, by the way. We don't talk about yeah. it enough. It's literally our natural wonder of the world mm. that we have responsibility to keep. We should at least know that it's the largest living thing <laughs> on Earth. So, yeah, it's a Great Barrier mm. Reef. It's so large you can see it from space mm. that it actually turns out we were missing quite a bit of it. In uh, fact, despite their size and unique features, researchers from UQ, QS ranking... 43. 43. Three. It's 43. Who's 23? Someone's 23. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, sure. I mean, someone is 23. <laughs> These researchers from UQ found out that global reefs are about 25% larger than we thought they were, which is a pretty huge amount of space. In total, the research found 64,000 extra square kilometres of shallow reef, which is about the size of Ireland, which now brings shallow reefs globally up to the size of Germany. Pretty cool. But how did we just, like, miss this? And how did we find it now? I mean, you'd think they're pretty big, unique structures. You could just find them. But it's not actually quite as simple as just looking down at Earth and pointing them out or swimming around. You'd think we would be at that stage by now, but mapping is actually still an incredibly laborious activity. Previously, scientists had to use things like flyovers in small planes, low-resolution satellite data as primary data sources amongst loads of other things like people swimming around or on boats. But now there's been one major tech upgrade that has finally allowed for this process to get maybe not easier but way more accurate, which is high-resolution global satellite data that is able to see reefs up to 30 metres in depth, hmm. which is game-changing. So, the researchers used two main satellites for their data, a little CubeSat named Planet Dove, which provided about 1.17 million images, and then the Sentinel-2, which provided 1.05 million scenes. So, together, these provided over 100 trillion pixels. And those pixels include information like reflectance values, which is how much light is reflected off the water, modelled wave environment, and then satellite-derived water depth, which was mainly through Sentinel-2. That's one of the things it brings to the party. And it's through those depth and wave values that really allowed the researchers to get some idea of what they were looking at as they influence and are influenced by coral reefs. So then the team of UQ linked this up with field data from almost 500 researchers and collaborators. And essentially by looking at the data from what we know are shallow reefs, we can see the pattern of a reef in that noise of 100 trillion pixels. Or at least you can teach a super big computer too. So by showing this machine learning program pixels from what we already know as a reef, we can then let it go forth and check every other pixel to predict whether there is or is not a reef there. Hmm. And for higher accuracy, the team actually broke up the globe into sections, I think it was about 30 sections, to account for known regional differences in things like turbidity, which is the amount of stuff in the water, and reef morphology, which just means the shape, um, so that it didn't get confused. So you, you know where these differences are, you split them up. And then as each map was being outputted, they put it through a bunch of post-processing things that I'm not going to go into, but essentially improve the accuracy. And then they still did another global validation on the map to make sure it was as accurate as possible. So now we have these shiny new maps and they are really, really shiny, like very, very exciting. There's a great article on The Conversation that the authors wrote where you can play with some of the maps and you can slide between the new and the old maps and see exactly where the new reefs are. We'll pop a link up on our socials. You should absolutely go look at them and play with it because it is incredible. It's like crazy to see the new reefs, but more than that, they've actually mapped the habitat types globally Ooh. and they've mapped these at like three so th 
they, the way they've done this is they've got three different scales of map. They've got the global map, which is just new and old briefs, and then they've got a slightly uh, larger, uh, smaller scale, larger resolution that you can yep. go through. Mm. And then on the lowest one in the five metre pixels, which is the smallest, which is incredible, five metre differences is insane from a satellite, mm. they've got this geological mapping. So they've got like morphology and then they've got the actual like habitat type. This is the sort of map I have dreamed of making. I honestly <laughs> didn't even know we were at this level of knowledge yet. So mm. it's a massive shout out to the authors of this paper. This is some really impressive science. And I'm actually like really proud because I got taught by some of these guys back in the day. And it's really cool to see what they're doing. Um, because five meter pixels from a satellite was something we were told about in uni as something that we had wanted. But yeah. I don't think was available at that time. So that was really, really cool to see it. But it is, it's not just cool to know it or see it on a map. Mapping is actually a very critical endeavour, especially to conservation, because if you don't know something exists or where it exists, it's very difficult to protect it. So now that this research has found what we think is the full extent of shallow water reefs and other researchers looking into so-called black coral reefs, which are in deeper water, we're able to get a much better picture of corals and reefs all over the world, which is vital because, as we know, they're in a lot of strife right now. And you can tell how useful these maps are because they're already being used by management bodies around the world to protect these new reefs. It's just incredible, honestly. Damn. Getting back yeah. to my weird science. <laughs> shout out to Michaela. Beef rice. <laughs> Beef. <laughs> you and, turn. And Gabe, Gabe, Gabe put the, uh, the call out for uh, a marketing name for it. And Michaela wrote in. And they said, instead of grain-fed beef, it should be called beef-fed grain. Incredible. Yeah, so Definitely. that's the name of the show this week. <laughs> beef-fed grain. Right. <laughs> Riz means, like, charisma, by the way, Max. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> from, the university, <laughs> from the University of Sussex. Sussex, Curious ranking. Curious ranking, 69. You tune into 4 Triple Z, and the show is No Idea with me, Max... Izzy, Peter, Gabe, and my son Maximilian, because yeah. it's time to do some of this. Okay, it's time for the best part of the show. Loosely defined as science, yeah, you already know. Everybody listens to 4 Triple Z just to hear us talking about what Bunches just did. Subscriptions just keep rolling like the tires on a car. But something tells me that our science covers won't go far. But unlike an engine, I won't keep you in suspension. We're all here to hear him talk, so let's give him attention. You're not ready for when he starts rapping. Gonna hand the mic to Max, and I'm not talking band staffing. Lights out and away we go. Sail GP happens this weekend, Gabe. Season four recommences this time in Sydney. You geared up to go and watch that at all? Not geared up at all, but we'll make it happen. All Team you have to do is just like walk down to the rocks. Yeah. Then. Yeah. yeah. Just sort of go and look at the boats. Yeah, in the harbour. Like, no tickets. Nah, forget that. They cost like a hundred bucks or something. Right? It's a big pair of binoculars. <laughs> you oh, you don't need binoculars. You don't. They get literally get within close. like twenty meters of you. Oh, even better. Yeah, <laughs> they're so close. So, Team Australia is still on top of the ladder. Uh, I think they're winning by six points from New Zealand, and let's hope. Uh, the regattas are more successful this year because last year they had a big blowout and a couple of boats got hurt. Oh, and yeah. The rigs got and they're doing it in storm yeah. season again. Yeah. <laughs> Bath Bathurst 12 hour happened on the weekend and it was an out another outright win for the Australian driver, Matt Campbell. And Matt Cam Campbell uh, won the Daytona 24 hour recently in a mm. prototype car. This time he was driving a Porsche GT3 car. Obviously, he's, he's pretty happy being part of the uh, works driver for the uh, German team. 
And yeah, so we'll see if he goes on to do Le Mans and all that sort of stuff and just keeps winning. Exciting. Yeah, it would be good. NASCAR also happened yesterday. It was the Daytona 500. Uh, William Byron was driving a Chevrolet. He won. Alex Bowman got second in a Chevy as well. And third went to Chris Bell driving a Toyota. We're all waiting for SVG to hit the scene because he's going to try and race full-time. He won't be racing full-time in NASCAR until 2025, but this year he has about 12 races penciled in, so that should be fun to watch. Okay, F1. Formula 1. The big one. The big one. All the cars have now been launched and have had their shakedowns. Into space like Elon Musk's. (laughs) 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 And the car I'm most excited about is the Red Bull number 20. And will it be an absolute slayer of a vehicle or not? I'm thinking, yes, it will, because Red Bull is basically six months ahead Mm. of the rest in design. And they're taking on some of the design cues from Mercedes. Mercedes couldn't get them to work, which is the zero-pod vertical inlets. And they've sort of cheekily showed off a car during the launch, having the vertical slots. And they think that this could be... They just could be sandbagging a bit, and they'll, they'll all come back with proper pods and not zero-pods. But we'll see, because testing starts today. Exciting. Yeah. And we get to see it at 5 o'clock today, Brisbane time. Yeah. What's, what's fantastic about this, Max, is it gets all hyped up about the, the teams rev- uh, uh, revealing their cars, but I think mm. we say this every year. There is no obligation for whatever they show beforehand to be the <laughs> yeah. car that shows up to the track. Yeah. <laughs> they could put a Hot Wheels car under the blanket, <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> and will some of the teams be sandbagging when they do the testing, uh, the pre-season testing today, tomorrow, and the next day? A bit like Mercedes back in 2014 when the rules changed, and Mercedes came out with this absolutely powerful uh, unit, power unit. And uh, it was... Uh, th- Mercedes was a bit scared with it because it was prone to braking, wasn't it, Maximilian? Yeah, it was... Uh, they were very concerned about the reliability going into testing and uh, they actually had a failure in the first race in Australia. Um, Lewis Hamilton's engine blew up. So they were a bit concerned, but they eventually realised that they were leagues ahead of the rest of the field, so they could afford to dial the engine back effectively. Mm. So and, yeah, uh, they'd run it at ninety percent rather than one hundred percent. I think it was more like seventy. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, they had a lot in the tank. Yeah, yeah. So, and of course, Mercedes went on to win eight constructors' championships with that car. That's how far ahead they were. And this is now the Red Bull era of being six months ahead in in in, in uh, development compared mm. to the other teams. So nothing will probably change until 2026 when the new regulations come in. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Yeah, of course, because that's uh, when Red Bull will be building their own engines. Uh, on behalf of Ford. So yeah. that'll be interesting to see. F1 helmets. I'm, I'm into the F1 helmets. I know Izzy is. Yeah, I sent you a post uh, last week. It must have been yeah. the full lineup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The new F1 helmets. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm fancying... Um, has everyone got a favourite helmet design for this year or not? Totally, of course I do. Yeah, <laughs> and it wasn't that long ago when the F1 drivers could only design two helmets for the yep. entire year. Mm-hmm. Now they've got infinite helmets they can use. So they could use one for free practice, one, and then have one for the race day. Yeah. It can be completely different. So the FIA sanctioned that they can, they got unlimited helmet designs, um, paint jobs on the helmets. Mm. Yeah, because they brought in that like rule. eyes on the back of it? 
Yeah, <laughs> it should have. I'm, I'm sure Daniel Ricardo's does. It's like psychological that. technique. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, yeah, go Macy. Yeah, they brought in that rule because Vettel did that. Mm. He would always bring a new helmet every race, and they got a bit sick of it. Right, they brought, brought that rule. <laughs> <laughs> they stopped finding him. Yeah. The, the um, so my favourite for this year so far is Alex Albon's helmet. Oh yeah. Yeah. Nice the mat. Yeah. Yeah, I like the Lando Norris one with the yeah um, all the tracks the squiggles. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. All the tracks on them. Maxi. Yeah, big fan of Ricardo's. You know, yeah, okay. No surprise there, though. Yeah, it is pretty sick. Gabe, you got any any preference for? I a haven't helmet? seen a single one. <laughs> I'll send that post across to you. <laughs> yeah, I have no context. Cool. Nah, that's all right. Um, we'll post it on the playlist for you. We will. We will. Yeah, we yeah. will. Any 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 more on Formula One before we uh, we move? Yeah, on? I've got we've got a minute, so I just wanted to jump through. Uh, I had a look through some of the rule changes that are happening this year, and mm. you talked about the sprint stuff happening, Max, and how oh, they're changing yes. that sprint weekend format. So mm. I, I won't do that again, but I just want—I picked out a couple more that I thought were, were interesting changes to some of the design this year that mm. you might look out for if you're an F1, F1 person, or you know, get into it after watching when Drive to Survive when it drops in a week or so, whenever a few <gasps> weeks. Twenty third. Twenty third. It's Friday. Mm. Whoa. So uh, yeah, three things I pulled out. Uh, this all comes from the Formula One official website, so that's where this info is from. But um, one was they're they're changing the the, the angel halo, the roll mm. hoop thing that they've got um, on the cars now, which has saved so many drivers <laughs> already. <laughs> um, but it comes off the back of last year. Uh, was it last year? No, twenty twenty two. Yeah. Jaguar um, uh, Yu, uh, who drove for Alpha. Romeo, I think. Yes, it is. And at yeah. Silverstone, yeah. Yep. Uh, he flipped and had a huge, uh, just <gasps> it was on yeah. his on top, resting on top of this halo on the car, and and it probably saved his bacon as he slid at high speed on mm. top uh, with the car upside down on this thing. So they've increased the load test uh, that they have to meet with the halos this year. Yes. Uh, so it has to be even stronger than it was then to to be able to make sure it can withstand events like happened to Zhou Guan Yu. Um, where, where you're sort of grating on it for a long time, the car's skidding on top of it, not just having something land on 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 it, but actually being upside down. Uh, they're also um, changing the DRS rules, the drag reduction system, which is the flap that they open up at the back. They call it a boost. Realistically, it's a brake that's on the cars. Most of the time, they're allowed to take that air brake off when they're within a second of someone in front of them in normal racing conditions. The, the, the catch that had been, you have to wait two laps at the start of a race mm -hmm. and mm. after a safety car restart to open it. Yeah. They've reduced that to one lap this year, so yeah. there's, there should be less delay on restarts and a bit more happening when cars are closer together at this, uh, restarts to race and the start of the race. And they've changed um, the power unit, which is the the fancy way of saying the engine and everything related to it that makes the car go broom. Uh, they put in a four... Um, power unit limit last season as like a one-off because it extended the season they it had been three previously and it was supposed to be three this year they brought it back up to four which is a bit disappointing to be honest mm. because part of it was trying to make the teams get a bit more sustainable and yeah, build engines that last better mm. uh, and they've had to sort of flip back on that after uh, some meetings and worst case is if you if you do use a fifth power unit you just have to s start from the back of the grid yeah, penalties the yeah so yeah. They've, yeah. they've sort of been swayed into <coughs> not pushing for the penalties mm. keeping them to three unpenalized changes in their power unit engine mm. uh and and they've pushed it up to four, which was a bit sad to hear because they are trying to trying to work down how many new parts these guys make mm. <laughs> for their cars every oh. single race. Uh, but yeah, those are the three things I pulled out. That was it. Yeah. Nice. I mean, the big limit still exists in terms of like the cost cap, though. So yes. it's not like 
they can spend an extra amount of money to build a new engine like they're still limited fundamentally mm. Mm. okay and finally <laughs> is it you you're in sydney well i was in sydney mm. but gabe and peter you were in melbourne mm. uh, yeah did you guys notice something parked in front of the loon croissants warehouse in melbourne <laughs> I don't tend to visit the Lucas Warehouse in Melbourne this when I go. Weird, but someone posted on the r slash Formula One subreddit mm. a photo of a Williams F1 car parked in the front of the Loon Croissants warehouse. And this led me to a bit of a deep dive about Kate Reed, who is the owner of Loon Croissants, mm. who was a former aerodynamicist at yeah, the Williams F1 team before she became a baker. And I love the overlap between <laughs> <laughs> food and Formula One. She's got, a work, she's got a book on it. She All does right. have a book yeah. on how her uh, degree in aerodynamics and engineering helped her make better pastries. I love it. So that was that's been um, that's been going up on my Reddit feed. So I just thought it'd be it's quite a gorgeous photo as well with that Williams the um, official Melbourne uh, <laughs> F one yes. slogans all across the side and people commenting that you know that's just her daily drive. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the seventy seven report. Do you know about this guy? Mm. Formerly the, the Valtteri Bottas and Roman mm. Grosjean report because they both race under the number 77 in their respective... And now you have an excuse to keep this report going <laughs> for another year. <laughs> Valtteri Bottas has been Instagramming about his skiing date with Aussie partner Tiffany Cromwell and catching the Northern Lights, which eerily have a similar hue to his steak F1 cars paint job. Meanwhile, the Phoenix, Roman Grosjean, has provided more clarity on his expectations this year after joining yet another IndyCar team. Roman says, well, well, we're definitely going to be top 10 and then try and be top 5. Uh, since joining 2021, Roman has been on the podium six times, but never on the top step. So will 2024 be the year he steps it up? The Phoenix thinks probably not, but feels anything can happen in Indy, IndyCar, and I'm saying a max prediction early before IndyCar starts. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that the Phoenix, Roman Grosjean, will at least get one win this year. And that is it for the motor app this week. Because yeah. yeah, dinosaurs did not go extinct. We know that. No, not dinosaur, Many dinosaurs went extinct, but mm. dinosaurs did not go extinct. We have them all around us. They're called birds. Yep. Mm. <laughs> I'd just like to really mm. lay down the law there. As a marine scientist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a marine scientist, I'm here to talk to you birds. about birds. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The fish of the And it air. may have not been a may yeah. have not been a meteorite. You changed the four triple Z and the show is no idea with me, Max, Easy. Peter and Kay. What do you got for Sky? Oh four two zero six two six seven three three is our number if you want to text in. Uh, it's on the website and the community radio plus app if you want to find you that can text line. Teach Max about birds. Yeah. Send Max your favourite bird fact. Just hit him Help with us. Yeah, I think he's at about 23 or something with his bird list now, so he just can expand his, his, his little bird vocab there. Yeah. But, Max, I'm excited. I'm very excited about this story. These are some of my favourite stories that we get to talk about on air uh, because they're these stories of nuts ecological interactions going on between what seem to be very disconnected things. This is a battle between ants in Kenya and the story is about how that battle between these ants has changed the landscape so much that it's changing how lions hunt. 
it's a product of three decades of research here. So we're, we're going to do a, a zoom through three decades of mm. like life's work for <laughs> yeah. people. Uh, and coming out of the University of Florida, QS ranking, anyone? Oh, that'd be 87. Uh, 36. 75. 168. Damn it. Uh, this is camera trap data. This is satellite uh, tracking lines with collars. This is uh, heaps of field work. And then they've wrapped that all together in some amazing statistical analysis that has pumped out this complex interaction between ants and trees and giraffes and elephants and lions and zebras and buffalo. So it starts in the early 2000s. Well, we're going to start in the early 2000s because this line of research found something pretty amazing about vicious little ants native to the Lake Kupia region in Kenya. Several species of these native ants. They're, they're in a genus called um, the Crematogaster, which is a very big genus, and there's a few species in there that live in a type of acacia tree with the fantastic name of whistling, th of whistling thorn trees. That's what they're Ooh, called. Do they mm. whistle? I don't know where the whistling bit comes from. They must whistle in the breeze, right? But it I can tell you where so. the, the thorn bit comes from mm -hmm. uh, because they're the dominant tree in the area that they study. They sort of define this landscape. Uh, and they themselves, like the name suggests, are defined by their thorns. And the trees... They look like pretty standard dry spiky acacia trees in East Africa. If you've ever seen a documentary with a giraffe wrapping its tongue around a really prickly looking branch, mm. the general look and feel is what we're talking about here for these acacia trees. Uh, but what makes them stand out is that some of their spines come out of these big bulbous growths. We're talking maybe golf ball size, maybe a bit smaller, a bit larger than that. Uh, but these bulbs are hollow uh, where the spikes are coming out and the native ants nest inside of them. These mm. studies from 20 years ago confirmed that the ants viciously defend their home plant sweet homes yeah. from herbivores trying to eat them, including giraffes and elephants. Right? These yeah. ants are fending off giraffes and elephants and keeping the the uh, plants safe. Mm. Apparently, they have formic acid in their bite, which can cause like a, a chemical burn. There's <laughs> a Disney movie That's here really, somewhere. Really, yeah, yeah really sensing painful. Sensing that in the air. Yeah, there's something <laughs> here, right? Ants <laughs> too. Maybe they did that one already. Uh, they're <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, and uh, they're really well equipped for hitting elephants by swarming up their noses and and biting like crazy the whole way. So it seems this acacia tree has evolved a mutualistic symbiotic relationship between uh, with these native Crematogaster ants. The ants get a home. The trees get eaten less because the ants defend them. Uh, that's how. That's the the current train of thought. Anyway, uh, there's a problem now though. A new ant has entered the area, <laughs> starting oh. about 15 to 20 years ago. Invasive big-headed ants, yeah. which are native. Oh. So a couple of islands in the Indian Ocean, ocean including uh, Mauritius, uh, they invaded this Laikupia county in Kenya uh, through sort of human built-up areas first and then into out into um, environmental areas. Uh, and the ants build and live in huge underground uh, metropolises, they're called, um, like a lot of ant species we know, right? They have, you know, have you seen those videos where they pour like molten aluminium down ant holes to see the, the massive, this is, I'm getting off track. They have big, yeah, underground, cool, yeah. big underground homes. But after they get into the ground, they then go and hunt down the smaller native ants that live in the acacias. They eat their pupae and their eggs. They kind of wipe out these native ants but don't live in the trees and they don't protect the acacia trees because they don't really get any benefit from them. Uh, so they kill the, the ants that the acacias need uh, and suddenly... They leave them stranded and they're vulnerable to elephant and giraffe attacks and other herbivores as well, like rhinos and things. And as a result, the elephants begin crushing and eating the acacia trees, destroying the tree cover. So uh, predictably after that, the landscape changes quite a bit. Um, they found that the elephant attacks 
between the two areas with the Nate advance and without them, uh, hang on, let me get the actual numbers, were resulted in five to seven times more broken trees than when they had the native ants in them. So five to seven times more trees get broken when the ants aren't there uh, because of these invasive ants that get rid of them. The lions, which are in the area, are ambush predators. They rely on the tree cover to stalk and hide before going after their main prey item, which is zebras. And so they set up a big study area where big-headed invasive ants uh, were and compared them to areas without them. And they measured the interactions between lions and zebras in these areas. They found that the big-headed ant invasion reduced the zebra kills because the zebras could spot the lions from further away mm. uh, and take evasive action. Uh, and and then because of that, the lions still needed to eat. So they've redirected their hunting effort onto buffalo. They found the number of zebras killed by lions declined from 67% of their diet to 42%. And the buffalo kills went from 0% to 42%. So they went from eating pretty much no buffalo to buffalo were like the main thing in their diet alongside zebra. Uh, and they, they were almost also three times um, more likely to attack and kill zebras in the remaining forest area. So they sort of, the lions had to change their behavior to suddenly go into the remaining bits of forest and eat zebra like crazy and get as many buffalo as they could in the less forested areas now. Uh, which means that these ants have invaded this part of Kenya. They've taken out the native ants that defend the acacia trees that define the landscape, which has meant the elephants can knock over the trees, which meant that there's no cover for the lions to hunt the zebra, which means the lions are now hunting more buffalo, all because of these little interactions between ants. Uh, what happens now is a bit up in the air. I'll, I'll give you a quote that uh, the lead author, Douglas Kamaru, gave to Forbes, which was, we don't know what's going to happen going forward. Uh, it's very difficult for lions to kill buffalo. It's a lot of energy compared to hunting zebra and sometimes buffaloes kill lions when they're fighting. So might not be a long-term solution for the lions, but, um, you know, they, another author did say nature's clever and critters like lions tend to find solutions to problems they face, uh, but we don't know what could result from this profound switch in the lion's hunting strategy and they're keenly interested in following up on this story. They're sort of written off getting rid of the ants. Mm, sounds like it. Doesn't <laughs> sound like that's even... They're not yeah. even thinking about that as an option. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Because it's just at the point where it's probably beyond eradication now. They said they're spreading uh, across the savannah at about 160 feet per year. So oh, a slow yeah. but steady Whoa. march across the savannah. Uh, wiping out these native ants, including the ones that live in the acacia trees, which means the acacia trees have lost one of their big defences against elephants. And so we could see a pretty big shift in, well, more quite, shifts quite in these savannah ecosystems mm. because of a little invasion of an ant. And that's my story for the week, Max. Dave uh, from Eco Radio, who's <laughs> waiting patiently next door, has texted in, Gabe, he just wants to inform you that they aren't actually called acacias anymore. There was oh, this is... Oh my goodness. Don't even get started on the botanical fight over whether <laughs> so, uh, uh, the southern and eastern African trees get to be called acacias or the Aussie trees have. He's right. Technically, the botanical naming has changed, I think, like a year or two ago that Australia won the name acacia yeah. and, uh, and Africa has to call them something else. But everyone yeah. knows them as acacia trees, so yeah. I went with acacia trees. <laughs> <laughs> Well played. Yeah. Well, Wasn't there a Dark Mirror thing about this too? I feel like I've seen mm. something on Dark Mirror about Black mirror? dreams. That's the yeah. one. Yeah. Dark <laughs> Black Mirror. mirror. Dark. <laughs> Dark. <laughs> That's the DC version. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like there was an episode. <laughs> no idea. Space news. Gilmore Space, the Gold Coast company, announced it was a month mm. away from its first rehearsal launch in the North Queensland town of Bowen. The unmanned rocket called Eros 
has been fully assembled, weighing more than 30 ton, tons and measuring 25 meters. The rocket is designed to carry satellites into space. Gilmore Space is working towards an official launch in April, pending approval, making it the first locally made rocket to lift off from Australian soil. How oh, good. We've had him on the show a couple of times, hey? We have. Nice. H3. This is the name of Japan's rocket made by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. It went into orbit on its second attempt. A key point in the launch was the separation of the upper stage because it failed to ignite its LE-5B3 engine on its first attempt. This time, everything went to plan. So hopefully, they've got another rocket in their arsenal to send up stuff into low Earth orbit. Now, Voyager 1. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about Voyager 1? No. Launched in and uh, unfortunately, it's failing to call back home. So we oh. send it a message oh. to do something, and it says nothing. Oh no! The flight starts. Just retired. Maybe <laughs> it's done. Just having a little lay <laughs> down. I think forty-six years is enough, isn't it, to be in space? Yeah. 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 Its flight data system is not responding, so that's the problem with it. It's now twenty-four point four billion kilometers away from Earth. But I am happy to report that its sister probe called Voyager 2 is doing well. Rocket Lab has used their Electron rocket to launch an astro-scale spacecraft that will rendezvous with and inspect a spent upper stage in low Earth orbit as a precursor to removing it. The 150-kilogram uh, satellite called Ardris J was released into an orbit of about 600 kilometres up. Astroscale said in a statement that it made contact with the spacecraft after deployment and address J was developed by Astroscale. Uh, it's going to be used to bring down uh, or deorbit it, uh, mm. space debris. So it's just going up to inspect a spent rocket up there and then they'll send another rocket up there to uh, another sort of satellite to deorbit said up. space junk. <laughs> Now, I sorry, you have to send two things up to take one thing down. Yeah, no, it's yeah. crazy, isn't it? <laughs> does, does the probe come back too? Well, I hope so. The first bit? It might. I don't know. They're, they're very vague on us. Mm. It's yeah. not a very good letter cleanup program, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a two for one deal. Now, it's <laughs> a one for two deal. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay. In, the company called Intuitive Machines. They've got a lunar lander going on its way to the moon. If it lands softly tomorrow on the moon, it will be the first commercial company to do such a landing. It will do our lunar insertion burn today to go into orbit for a day around the moon. And now the European Space Agency, they've reported, and they're being very transparent about this, they don't have control of a very big satellite that they own. It's coming back to Earth. They jettison all the propellant out of it, so they can't fire up its uh, thrusters anymore. And the knock-on effect is they're not sure where it's going to burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. And And here's the kicker. They reckon there'll be parts as large as 52 kilograms falling back to land. Holy crap. Single parts that big? Yes, 52 kilograms worth. Now, I'm I'm happy to report there's never been a reported fatality Mm. from satellite (laughs) junk falling back to Earth. Yes. Yes. But... (laughs) (laughs) 
That's right. Never say never. Mm. Well, it's just statistically likely that it will happen once. Sorry, yeah. do, do we know when, Max? This week. Just so we can... This week. This week. Yeah, Generally this week? Probably or like a Friday. 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 Yeah. So okay. stay in our Friday or their Friday? When crossing our the Friday. road this Friday, look yeah. left, right, and up. Yeah. <laughs> stay inside. <laughs> stay inside. Watch Drive to Survive. <laughs> Don't go outside. So true. Okay, we'll get back into the playlist. No, uh, we won't. No, we won't. Oh. Because you missed a massive part of Space News, Max. No, and I'm here to fill that. Thank you. Not really, though, because what they've discovered is the world's biggest black hole. Oh. I don't mm. think anything can fill it. It came out a couple of days ago. It's been a huge story. It's the brightest thing we've ever seen in, I don't know if it's the galaxy or the universe. It is the universe, I believe, mm. in the universe that we know of, the brightest thing in the universe. Yep. And it is the fastest growing black hole that we know of, which is why it's so bright. It's surrounded by a bunch of very bright matter. Is it also falling to Earth this Friday? No, I hope Hopefully so. not, but they did <laughs> say that... They, they, the tone of every report I've seen has been like, oh, biggest black hole ever. Mm. It's growing so fast. And I'm like, cool, 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 cool. It, it eats a planet right? a day, apparently. It eats a sun a day, Max. A sun a day. One of our suns. Oh, okay. Because, like you yeah. know, you can get very many different suns. Our sun eats one of our suns every single day. Mm. The She's name of this uh, unit is J0529-534. <laughs> Four three five one. My mm. apologies, I mispronounced mm. that. Um, it is five hundred trillion times more intense than the light of our sun. The light that's coming out of this thing, and yeah, it, it just has so much energy coming out of this thing. It mm. is massive, and it's the nearby universe. Super. Uh, oh no, I've read that wrong. Sorry, never mind that. Mm. Basically, it's just a feeding frenzy of a black hole. And mm. it seems like scientists are both very excited and a little bit nervous about 12, it. 12 billion light years away, according to live yeah, science. And I reckon we've got a few years on it. And from, from edge to edge to travel that, it, it would take 17 light years. So, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, amazing. <laughs> I didn't do it because Z-Line's already spoken about it, so I thought I'd let it mm. go. But thanks for that, mm. Peter. Someone doesn't pay attention during the news. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that it's worth expanding on what the Z-Line has produced because it's such good content. It is. It is. Science out, guy. Yeah, I guess I'll see you next week, Max, because that's all we have time for on the show. <laughs> we'll be on 10 to 12 on your Wednesday morning next week. Uh, like we are every week. Up next is Eco Radio. What's happening, Izzy? I'm talking moneyless markets and we're talking circular economy and apparently there's a new R added as well to the reduce, reuse, recycle shenanigans. So we'll talk oh, about that. Oh, it's four. No. What, remember? I a song about that in year three. Yeah. Now it's out of date. <laughs> need a new edition. We need a new edition. <laughs> talk all that and more at Eco Radio. That's Don't it. move around. I'll run around. But And we had a few non-subs uh, texting in today. Thank you very much. But if you really want to be a part of the team it'd be great if you could subscribe so go to the website at 4zzz.org.au forward slash support and you can pay as little as 20 dollars or right up to 500 dollars if you wish to subscribe mm -hmm. and max i should give a quick shout out to the z-liners because i think the next round of z-line internships is mm. open for applications at the moment if you are keen on jumping gotcha. on air if you're a journal yeah. student or someone who wants to have a crack at radio you can have a look at the four triple z website and newsletters and have a look at the information there but thank you max thank you izzy thank you peter for your stories this week we should get off the airwaves so eco radio can get on them and we'll speak to you next week see you i'm a goddamn marvel of modern science, science.